Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer... During the flight, he's being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Hello, I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And I've come to Space Fest in Tucson, Arizona, where there is, I reckon, the largest gathering of Apollo astronauts for many years. I'll be talking to two of them from either end of the Apollo program, Rusty Swikehart, lunar module pilot of Apollo 9, and Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon. And here we are, four decades later, we've gone to the moon... And we can't even get our own spacecraft in space to go to our own space station. What do you think JFK would think about that? Also, we come right up to date with a report that says tiny satellites known as CubeSats could be used for high-priority science missions, which would radically reduce the cost of space exploration. Now, there are worse places to make a podcast. I'm sitting outside a luxury resort in the hills just overlooking Tucson, Arizona. And the hills are covered in cactuses. They're the sort of comedy, comedy cactuses out of, uh, out of, of Roadrunner. And there are actually Roadrunners here as well. I've spent the most of the last couple of days, though, inside where there are astronauts, mission controllers, space scientists and authors. And before we hear from those astronauts, I'm joined by space blogger Emily Carney, who writes the This Space Available blog, and astronomer Nick Howes. Are you, are you in the Guinness Book of Records? Did I write, I am, read yeah. this right? This is, on, this is on Wikipedia. Is this true? It is true. Uh, the team I worked with in 2009, we took the largest ever ground-based image of the moon from Sir Patrick Moore's house. So the 14 of us involved, and the end image was about 1.3 terabytes of data, which took us a month to do data reduction on. I mean, we're going back six years now. Um, the image itself is nine feet high, nine feet wide. It's composed of 288 image panels. So, yeah, it's the biggest. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. It's the biggest image. Fantastic. Space Fest, what is it? I mean, and, and what sort of people come? Space Fest was kind of the original idea of a man called Kim Poor. So Kim Poor is a really famous space artist. And about eight, nine years ago now, he had a dream of kind of getting art and science combined into one big event. So that set up Space Fest, and him and his wife Sally and the family basically have had these events running. Now, this is the seventh Space Fest, which is a couple of years off after the last one in Pasadena. 
Mostly it's in Tucson, Arizona, at the Marriott Resort here where we are. And it's a real celebration of space flight um, from a Mercury. We've had Mercury astronauts here. We had Scott Carpenter just before he passed away at the last one. Flight directors from the Mercury, Gemini and Apollo programs. And as you said, we've got the greatest lineup of Apollo astronauts I've ever seen. This year, I mean, it's, it's off the scale. We said that if this was going to be the last Space Fest, which we think it is, we were going to go out with a huge bang and getting people like Jim Lovell, Mike Collins... As you said, Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon, Charlie Duke. We've got numerous moonwalkers here. For 24 people that flew to the moon and walked on the moon, we've probably got about half of them here. Emily, it's quite an I mean, almost intimidating lineup. They're all in their, their booths to, to sign autographs. And just to see people like Mike Collins and Gene Cernan and, and Jim Lovell and, and Dave Scott, and, and some of these people, particularly like Mike Collins, you'd rarely see. Mike Collins, uh, to many of us, is kind of like the Charles Lindbergh of um, spaceflight because he's he's not seen much. He's I wouldn't say he's reclusive, but he doesn't. He's kind of under the radar. He's he's kind of just you know an unassuming guy. He likes to paint and fish and do his thing, and he doesn't really come out to a lot of events. So to see Mike Collins here, I actually talked to him yesterday. He's actually he's very outgoing and he's just very he's hilarious. Um, he probably wrote and and this is just my opinion. Uh, the best autobiography of any astronaut called Carrying the Fire in 1973. Actually, I think we all agree with that, yeah, don't we? Yeah, it's, it is. It's an outstanding piece of work. I mean, Al Warden's book, I'd say, is probably in the top three as well. And Gene Turner's Last Man on the Moon. But yeah, Carrying the Fire is, a, is an amazing piece of work. What do you make, though, Emily, of, of the of the autographs? I mean, I know these, these you know, they're, they're not going to be here for, for nothing. But I mean, the, the prices, I've ranked them here. I've just done a little list. So you could get Rusty Swikehart for $95. And if you move up, you're looking at Charlie Duke, $150. Collins, Mike Collins, $350. US and Gene Cernan, $500 for, for an autograph. And people are queuing up to get those. Unfortunately, effect of life, just like all of us, is these gentlemen are getting older. And plus, just the um, you kind of notice, as bad as it sounds, a, almost a hierarchy of what they did. You know, Rusty Schweikert is a is an amazing astronaut, not to detract from any of his accomplishments. He had a, he's had a remarkable career. He was on one mission, Apollo 9, and he wasn't a moonwalker. Uh, Gene Cernan is the last... Schweikert's kind of under the radar. He's another one of those guys, you know, he's kind of almost not quite like Collins, whereas Cernan is kind of... He's like a celebrity. He's He is the last man on the moon, you know? I mean, you know, there's going to come a time someday that when they go away, this is the end of an era. That's true, isn't it, Nick? They're, I mean, not that far off. You mentioned Scott Carpenter. These are people who are not going to be around that much longer. We're going to be in a time, in a few years' time, where all the people who walked on the moon won't be with us anymore. That's a tragic fact. I mean, the fact you know, that we're now 44 years on from the last time we did anything significant in human spaceflight in terms of not being in low Earth orbit, is one of the most tragic things, I think, of, of this modern era. It's the only area of science where we've regressed. You think about any other area or aspect of scientific research, you know, in any field, to go from human spaceflight where in the 1960s we're using slide rules and the computing power of a pocket watch to go from here to the moon and do it six times. I mean, the phone in my pocket is 800,000 times more powerful than the entire Apollo program. 
I find that really quite depressing. The thing with the autographs as well, the signatures, putting on an event of this magnitude where you've got several hundred guests coming along into a hotel that's a five-star resort, it's, it's really, really costly to do. So the astronauts do charge quite high amounts, but some of that obviously goes into paying for and helping for the event. It, it's amazing that we're in Tucson and yet half of Tucson don't know about the fact that they've got people of this legendary status here. And yet, if Justin Bieber was to turn up, for example, they'd probably be queuing out of the... It's, it's, it's a sad fact. But people, in my opinion, who've done so little for humanity or for the human race or for the advancement of science... Gene Cernan's a great example. He spent 44 years being an amazing STEM ambassador and an advocate for science. Well, Nick and Emily, thank you very much. As we've mentioned, one of the most famous astronauts here is Captain Gene Cernan, veteran of Gemini 9, Apollo 10 and Apollo 17, which made him the last man on the moon. And that's the title of the recent film made about him and his missions. We had a mission to do, all working towards the same goal. We were pretty impressed with ourselves. We had big eagles. But we knew going in that some people weren't going to make it. What happened? They're dead. Well, I'd be surprised if you'd not seen the film, but even if you have, it's worth catching again. And I asked Gene Cernan if he was surprised about how well The Last Man on the Moon has been received. I just couldn't appreciate why people would be interested in a movie, quote, about me. I found out later it really wasn't about me. It was about the story of a young kid with a dream. Could have been from any town, USA... I just got back from Australia. It could have been any town in Australia. A young kid with a dream who was determined, who was determined to do something that at that point in his life was unreachable. Unreachable. And then it was, from, in my case, it was fly airplanes off aircraft carriers, a product of World War II. And <clears throat> I watched those young men and young women do, young men mostly. You know, make airplanes do the impossible. And that's what I want to do. And I was absolutely determined somewhere, I don't know how I got that way, that that's what I was going to do no matter what. And, uh, and, and so when a story became evident to me, and I was convinced that this is something young kids 10 or 20 years down the line have to see that these guys who went to the moon didn't come out of the blue sky in silver capes, you know, they put on their pants one leg at a time. They had a family. They had kids. They made mistakes. And they were just like everybody else. That there was a message I was almost responsible to leave with these kids. If I can do it, why can't they? That piece of our history is so exciting that it's got life. It's got life. There's no, there's no half-life to it. It's just, you know, space today is an exciting to a 10 or 12 year old, because I've talked to him, as it was to grandma and grandpa 40, 40 years ago. And so it's, that's what we're working with. And the answer to your question is, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. It's, uh, it, it's, 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 it's incredible that people like it so much. And the little things they like are the fact that I was willing to tell them who I was. Well, that I, I was think willing I, to bring my friends in and let them tell you 
who I was. Well, that's what I was going to say, that it's the strength of it. Is, because, I mean, the story of going to the moon has been told again and again and again. The strength of this film is it's, a, it's personal. And, very, and, and you're very open. I, when we went in, I said, I want it to be personal. I don't want it to be, you know, all the mechanics that go in the moon. We know that. And I gave him a list, and I think it was like some 40 people. Now, we never got to all of them. They included my kids and my grandkids, my friends and my sister, and anybody who I could think of that had anything to do with me from the time I was 8 or 10 years old to the time I entered the government. I said, that's the story you want. You don't want my story. That's the story. And and they, they got to probably, I don't know, a third or half of them. And that's where the story came from. And what I like about it, nothing was scripted. Nobody said, Gene, here's what we're going to talk about today. They just, we went somewhere, wherever it was, Arlington, the cemetery. We went to, to the, the, the aircraft carrier Midway in San Diego. We went to all these places. And all, all I did, I like to think of it, that they just hung a microphone on me and said, think out loud. And in retrospect, that's what I did. I'm standing there and I'm saying, you know, why is Roger Chaffee six feet underground and I'm here? That I was thinking that, but I was saying that at the same time. And so that plus their incredible talent in putting music and scenery and, 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 and a video together and impacting... You know, you go from a very, very quiet time when they're talking about, and I remember Gene Kranz was saying, you know, it's a risky business. We can't get there without taking a risk. And then all of a sudden, boom, the rockets go off, showing that we, you know, the Phoenix is is, is, is recovering. We're, we're back in business. And, and went at the cemetery for Roger Chaffee's funeral, and I kept thinking, and I did, it, and it, it it came out in the audio. Are we burying our friends, or are we burying the entire Apollo program? And, and I I will swear to God, that's exactly what what went through my mind at that point in time. And I didn't have an answer. I guess that's what people like about the movie. I think I mean it's it's all emotion. So there's there's that when you're talking about Apollo one, but also you were taken to the launch pad of Apollo, and there you just seem you seem angry seeing these these decaying Apollo launch pads. Nostalgia. There's only one place where human beings have left this planet to call another planet. If you allow me to call the moon my home, and it was my home, only one place on the entire planet that we left to go somewhere else and we've just let that place disappear and I said I wish I hadn't come this way I don't want to see it this way I want to see it vibrant I want to see it I want to see that big boosters steaming all that oxygen I want I'm going to be ready to go again huh and and to see the way it was just it was just being torn down. There was nothing there, and and that 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 hurt quite frankly. And here we are, four decades later, we've gone to the moon, and we can't even get our own spacecraft in space to go to our own space station. What do you think Jeff K would think about that? If you think back to Apollo seventeen, though, <clears throat> you ended on such a high. 
I mean, that whole mission, you look, listen back to the, any of the tapes of it, you, you land, it's exuberant when you're, you're landing. And there it is, Houston, there's Camelot, wide wow. off target, I see it. We got them all, 42 degrees, 37 degrees, two, You got so much work done, science done, you drove across the moon, and then you had those, those final words, the final footstep. I mean, you must be proud of, not just the achievement of Apollo, but that mission in particular. Oh, yeah, I am. I, uh... I needed, if you go back far enough, and and I've said it, uh, I was an underdog. I'm the only guy that did go to just part of school. I needed that flight to prove that I was good enough. That was very important to me. And uh, and I was willing to, to fight for it. I was willing to, to literally turn down an opportunity to walk on the moon for maybe a chance to command Apollo 17. It was that important to me. I don't know how, why me, how I came out of winter, but I did both. I walked on the moon. I commanded at 17. But, yeah, we were, I, I was on a high the whole time. You know, and people say, how does it feel to be the end? How does it feel to be the tail of the dog? Last one on the fence, and I got on my box. It said, we're not the end. We're just the beginning. Now, the beginning hadn't yet begun yet, unfortunately, from my point of view. But we're just, you know, we're not only going to go back to the moon, we're going to go to Mars. And indeed we are. At what point in time, I don't know. But, yeah, we're on a, how can you not be on a high when you've got control and, and you're in control of your own destiny? And that's where I felt. When I stepped on the moon, it wasn't the steps that counted. It was the fact that I proved to myself that I was good enough to get that far. People said, do you ever worry about getting off? No, I didn't worry about getting off. I, as long as I was there, I was going to get back off the moon when the time came. I'm going to do make the best of what I got a rover to drive. I'm going to be here three days. You know, what, what else in your life, what other mountain can you climb that's going to give you a high like that? And then you get home successfully. You know, and the whole world is we, and we traveled around the world afterwards. I don't care what color, what size, what shape, what religion. People were throwing their babies at you like you were something that just came right out of heaven. And it, it, it's almost embarrassing, quite frankly. And it's almost embarrassing. I, yes, I went to the moon. I'm in the history books. I, I don't look over my shoulder. I did it yesterday. I want to know what I'm going to do tomorrow. So I can sit here and talk to you and say, yeah, I lived on the moon. It's almost embarrassing for me to say that. It's egotistic for me to say that to you. What do you mean you lived on the moon? Give me a break. Gene Cernan and The Last Man on the Moon's on release everywhere. You can buy it, stream it, you can download it. And there's plenty more of that interview, which we hope to share with you in the coming months as part of another project we're working on. He said mysteriously. Still to come on Space Boffins, why Apollo 9's Rusty Swikehart wants the next human missions to visit not the moon or Mars, but an asteroid. This is Space Boffins, the award-winning space podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find Space Boffins on Facebook and Twitter, where I'll put some pictures of Space Fest and our recording location in Tucson. You will be jealous.
A few weeks ago, a space company NanoRacks released its 100th CubeSat from the International Space Station. These small, low-cost satellites, based around a 10-centimetre cube, are often used as technology demonstrators, as well as by universities for experiments in orbit. A new report, though, commissioned by NASA and the US National Science Foundation, recommends that CubeSats could also perform high-priority space science. Thomas Seberkin is the chair of the Achieving Science Through CubeSats committee. Sue Nelson caught up with him when he was recently in the UK. CubeSats in many ways have been successful. They have provided educational opportunities. They have proven some technologies. But can it really be a tool for high-priority science? And what this report has done is basically said yes with an exclamation mark. Yes, it can. It's a confirmation of what many of these innovators have thought for many years uh, here in the UK or elsewhere, basically who have uh, innovated, have built companies and basically said, this is a platform that can really evolve to provide high priority data. And this report says, yes, absolutely. Based on all the data that are out there, this is a really powerful tool and it can become even more powerful in the future. Most of the inventory of NASA funded CubeSats on science are in the future. They're going to be launched in the next uh, two and three to three years. There's uh, more than 50 CubeSats or so that are going to be launched focused on science in the next few years. So it's incredible what will happen. I mean, I think in most people's minds, when they think of a a science mission, you think of a a relatively big spacecraft, be it ExoMars for, for Europe or Rosetta or Messenger, the, the Mercury mission that you worked on. Have you got an example of where a CubeSat could sort of do the equivalent of something of those sizes? Yeah, so there is a CubeSat that's funded by the, by the US National Science Foundation. It's two small CubeSats that were launched in low Earth orbit, and they look at the radiation belts really low down in the atmosphere. Now, what's interesting about the the high atmosphere or the low ionosphere is you would never put a big spacecraft there. In fact, if you did, it costs a lot of money because you're constantly fighting your urge to crash because of the friction with the atmosphere. So it's a largely unexplored part of our space environment. So what they did is they put these two spacecraft up because of the fact that the two is it allows to measure gradients So they're next to each other and basically look at the gradients that are up there. And uh, in addition to that, manage to connect what's measured with the uh, Van Allen probes high up in space with the kind of indications of uh, the radiation belts that we see in the auroral regions, for example, from the ground in uh, Sweden or, you know, on balloons. So basically it's this kind of niche science in a high-risk orbit, as we will call it, that is just as good or better than you could do with a big spacecraft and really does high-priority science in a way that actually the results from something like this was in a nature paper. So it's it, it's the, the highest priority science you could possibly get. Obviously, it's going to be cheaper than a bigger craft. And you mentioned, you know, you could use two side-by-side and the use of constellations then, would a a constellation of CubeSats still be cheaper than a big science mission? For some applications in Earth science and uh, solar and space physics, constellations are the killer app. I mean, for example, if you want to look at the evolution of severe weather, that the time between dark clouds convection until finally 
uh, thunderstorm starts firing is of the order of 10 minutes. Well, our satellites that we're using to image those have repeat times of 90 minutes or so. It's just the wrong tool. So if you wanted to really make breakthroughs in, in uh, severe weather, constellations that repeat or fly every 10 minutes or every five minutes are the right tools. And that's what constellations do for you. So constellations are amazingly capable for some problems. Uh, the magnetosphere, you know, space weather, largely speaking, the biggest challenge we have in space weather predictions is that we try to do hurricane predictions with two weather stations. I mean, we have one at L1, we look at the sun, and, you know, perhaps it's three because we have one in the atmosphere. But the point is, nobody can do that. The, the way you do hurricane predictions in regular weather is by imaging, is by many, many different weather stations that you put together. So for us to be great at space weather forecasting is we need to instrument space. The only way you can do that affordably is using CubeSat-like spacecraft and instrument space. There's certain spacecraft we will not build anymore, I would predict, within a few years, just because, frankly, a constellation of CubeSats will just do better in all ways. CubeSat convert Thomas Seberkin from the University of Michigan. Well, let's get back to Apollo now. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The launch of Apollo 9 on the 3rd of March 1969. That was the checkout mission for the entire Apollo system with the command module and lander docking and undocking in Earth orbit. The first pilot of the lunar lander was Rusty Swikehart, who at 80 is still very much active in the space business. Founder of the B612 Foundation, he campaigns for tracking systems and space missions to protect the Earth from asteroids. Well, in the early days when we began working on this around 2001, 2002, the handful of us who were really working on it used to refer to the giggle factor because you would talk about asteroids impacting the Earth and preventing asteroids from impacting the Earth, and people would think you were joking. They don't anymore. I mean, that's, that's, that's long gone now. The giggle factor is long gone. The 15th of February of 2013, uh, everybody in the whole world became aware of an, an asteroid that impacted in, over Chelyabinsk in Russia. And uh, no, luckily nobody was killed, but there were 1,500 people who went to the hospital. So nobody today takes it as a joke. It's a very serious issue. I mean, we are going to be a- impacted by asteroids uh, unless we prevent them. And you're calling these city killers, these asteroids? Well, I, the, the, luckily, the U.S. Congress were the ones who put the name on it. Now we use it because they helped us out there by making it dramatic. But, I mean, yeah, there are asteroids that are about 40, when an asteroid is about 40 meters or so in diameter, you know, 150 feet or so in diameter, that hits the Earth. If it comes in over a city, it can wipe out everybody and everything in that city. I mean, totally destroy it. So we refer to asteroids that are about 40 meters in diameter, of which there are about a million out there, of which we know less than 1%. So 99% of the so-called city killer asteroids that potentially threaten the Earth, we don't even know about yet. Uh, So we've got to find them. And then uh, ultimately when you find them, you can predict whether they're going to impact. And 
since you can predict an impact up to 100 years ahead of time, and we know that we can deflect them, you know, you, if you're not passionate about it, you've got to be nuts because, you know, you're talking about destroying, you know, you can easily prevent, not easily, <laughs> but you can prevent huge destructive accidents. This is a natural disaster, but it's a cosmic natural disaster. Most natural disasters you can't prevent. You can protect your home or your family or your city or whatever against them to some extent, you can evacuate for a hurricane or go to the cellar for a tornado or something, but you can't prevent these things. Asteroid impacts, which are a huge potential disaster, we can literally prevent if we simply act responsibly. And that's where the passion comes from. And you say act responsibly. You're getting people to take this seriously now, but there are still no missions or no real amount of money, significant amount of money, put into monitoring and finding these asteroids? Well, no, no, that's that's not quite true. I mean, uh, compared with other space projects, that's right. The money that's spent on it is a a drop in the bucket. But for over 10 years, that was NASA was spending $4 million a year. Now they're spending about $40 million a year. On it, so it's something. I mean, it's nothing compared with a with a budget of twenty billion dollars that NASA has a year, but uh, forty million dollars is uh, is more, much more significant than what's been spent. What we ought to be spending is something on the order of two hundred million dollars a year, and putting up an infrared space telescope to discover the ninety percent, ninety nine percent plus of asteroids that can do serious damage if they hit. Uh, that we don't know about yet. We know about, you know, only 1% or so of the asteroids that can do tremendous damage when they hit. Why do you think that's that's not happened? I mean, is it because we're human nature that we'll only do something once the real threat is there? We see an asteroid coming towards us. It's such a long-term idea to get your head around. Yeah, that, that, that's, that is part of the reason. I mean, there are a number of reasons why it isn't in the forefront of people's thinking and, uh, and awareness. I mean, the most obvious reason that that's the case is because asteroid impacts, while they can be devastating, I mean, they can eliminate humanity at the largest end of the scale, but while they're tremendous uh, events, they happen extremely rarely. So people don't know how to handle. Nobody really has an intuitive feeling for something that may happen once every 500 years. In orbit, the Apollo 9 astronauts are beginning 10 days of the most complex mission ever attempted in space. Now, I know we're short of time, but it'd be very remiss of me not to ask you about the moon sure. and Apollo. You flew the checkout uh, mission, Apollo 9, right. for the moon, the first person to fly the, uh, lunar, the, the lunar module. Inside Gumdrop, the astronauts prepare for first Schweikert, then McDivitt to enter the LEM. In their weightless world, up is where your head happens to be, and moving around can be fun. What do you feel about current talk about returning to the moon and the European Space Agency, the new head of the European Space Agency, talking about a moon village, and Mm -hmm. certainly Europe and Russia talking about the moon rather than Mars? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's far easier to get to the moon than it is to get to Mars, obviously. So... uh, 
Uh, for the United States, it's, it's a little bit of been there, done that. So the United States doesn't talk as much, but there are advocates for going back to the moon, strong advocates. But in the United States, you know, people are looking to go beyond that, and the next logical place is Mars. So, you know, there's probably more talk in the United States about, you know, sending humans to Mars than there is to back to the moon. Uh, but, again, the moon is, is a step uh, out, and for for nations that haven't yet made that step, that's a logical target. So it's understandable that, that uh, there, there is this difference, this dichotomy between, uh, you know, what people see as the goal. What would you like to see? Well, I mean, my, my personal uh, thing is obviously that humanity go to Mars. Uh, I think that's going to be much more difficult uh, relatively speaking, than it was back in the you know 1960 time frame, making a, a goal to go to the moon. There are really big things that we know about that are real problems. Radiation. I mean, when you're going three days to the moon, that's no big deal. But when you're going 300 days to Mars, space radiation is going to be a real issue, and we have no real idea how to solve that problem. That's a biggie. So there, you know, it's it's going to be a big, a bigger challenge than I think a lot of people would want to see. But it's such a fascinating subject that people are talking about considering one-way missions. One way, you know, as an individual, you can talk about a one-way mission. I mean, I'm 80 years old. I'm over. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, my life is behind. Why not? You know, I'd just soon die on Mars. So you know, people could talk about one-way missions, but governments can't. I mean, can a government put together a program that's going to kill people? I mean, that, you know, the public won't accept that. So I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things uh, about it. It's far easier to go to the moon and come back. Finally, you must be heartened, though, that people are talking about this again, that are talking about the moon and Mars actually building on the work that you carried out in the, in the 1960s and early 70s. Well, my, my real stepping stone in getting to Mars that I would like to see is, is humans going to an asteroid. Asteroids orbit the sun the same way Mars does, I mean, and Earth, and Earth for that matter. Asteroids don't orbit the Earth. They orbit the sun. So you're, you have deep space objects, and yet asteroids are easier to get to and cheaper to get to than to get to Mars, and you get a lot of practice. And asteroids are very interesting, not just to protect ourselves from the occasional one that's going to hit the Earth, but also because they're natural resources. I mean, and they are resources that are already in space, so we don't have to carry up water or oxygen or things, material, from the Earth. We can quit digging up the Earth and let's dig up asteroids and use them in space for other activity. So to me, a logical precursor step to getting to Mars is sending humans to asteroids and then on to Mars. That's my particular agenda. I love the way he brings my questions about the moon back to asteroids. Apollo 9 lunar module pilot Rusty Swikehart, a funny, interesting and energetic man. We'll have plenty more from Tucson in the coming months here on Space Boffins, including a visit to the world's largest wallpaper paste table. It's really not that. It's actually for something spacey. Spoilers. Space Boffins is a Boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're only possible thanks to the support of the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society, who gave us a grant, which is nice. If you'd like to give us a grant, do get in touch. I'm Richard Hollingham. Let's end with some more Gene Cernan and his last words from the surface of the moon on December the 14th, 1972. This is Gene, and I'm 
I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future, I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus literal, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. Godspeed to crew of Apollo 17.